Please take your Bible and turn with me to the Gospel of John. We pick up where we left off last week in John's Gospel, the second chapter, beginning with the 13th verse. I'm reading today from the New American Standard Bible and invite you to follow in whichever version of the Bible you have with you today. John chapter 2, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords, that would be a whip, and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Hippocrates was a Greek physician who lived in the latter part of the 5th century and the early part of the 4th century B.C. He has been dubbed the father of Western medicine. He is perhaps best known for the Hippocratic Oath, which is attributed to him. It calls all those who are physicians who take the oath to be people who have the highest ethical standards. I'll never forget first hearing that oath quoted. It was at a graduation ceremony in my hometown of Memphis, Tennessee, at the University of Tennessee Medical School, when I was attending because a relative was graduating that day. It made an impression upon me because of the solemnity to it, but also because of the substance of it. Well, this man, Hippocrates, is known for many things, one of which has been intriguing to me for years. He was the one who came up with a classical designation of the four major temperament types among people. If you're familiar with these types, two of them are extroverted types of personalities. That would be the sanguine type. The sanguine individual would be represented, for instance, in the Apostle Peter. Peter was very people-centered, and he was very impetuous, and he always seemed to have optimism in his life. Those are characteristics of someone who is a sanguine temperament, according to the way in which Hippocrates viewed temperaments. The other extroverted temperament is the choleric. The choleric is an individual who is also very people-oriented, but is a driven person. The great leaders of the world tend to be in that category of choleric. In the Bible, the Apostle Paul is a perfect example of a choleric, 
a person with a vision and a plan to reach a goal. Then there, according to Hippocrates, were the two introverted personality or temperament types. The phlegmatic, the phlegmatic is an easygoing individual. Nothing seems to ruffle the phlegmatic's feathers. Sometimes the phlegmatic never gets started in what he is doing. But nevertheless, the phlegmatic is a temperament that God created in people. And Abraham is an example, according to the experts, of someone who has this kind of temperament. Easygoing, not wanting to be confrontational, etc., etc. And the final temperament, and it too being an introverted temperament type, is the melancholy temperament. That is the temp- temperament which is above all other characteristics, very introspective and very creative. Sometimes can be brooding, this temperament. Moses is the great example in the Bible of such a person. Now, as I have studied this subject of temperaments, not just using the Hippocratic model, but other models, I have often wondered, was Jesus primarily an extrovert or was Jesus primarily an introvert? Was Jesus choleric or was Jesus phlegmatic? Was Jesus sanguine or was Jesus melancholy? And my expert opinion has yielded this information. I think Jesus was the perfect blend of all four. And we look at Jesus in the second chapter of John. Last week we saw how he was invited to a party. Probably he was the life of the party. After all, he is the life, right? He was invited to the party. He perhaps showed his sanguine side then, but also, in a way, he showed maybe his introverted side of being phlegmatic. He was sort of the laid-back Lord there. He was enjoying what was going on. He seemed to be, in a sense, annoyed when his mother came to him and said to him, they've run out of wine. He said, woman, what does that have to do with us? That's what he's saying. So he got a little flared up there toward his mother. He didn't sin, right? Because he didn't sin. But... This is my conclusion. Jesus shows us all aspects. If you study his life carefully, you will discover he shows forth the strong points of the sanguine, the choleric, the phlegmatic, and the melancholy in the passage which we're looking at today. One would think, after having read the first part of John chapter 2, and if you carefully studied it from the viewpoint of Jesus' temperament, You see him as the sympathetic guest there. In this section, he seems to have a role reversal, doesn't he? A temperament change because he's a stern reformer in that particular section of John. So is Jesus one who has dual personalities? Is he unsure about who he is? Is he disturbed emotionally? Does he suffer from some sort of mental disorder that would cause him to be one way one time and another way the other time? Well, the answer is absolutely not. What have we discovered about who Jesus is in our study of the book of John? The Bible tells us in the opening remarks of John's gospel, in the beginning was the Word, speaking of Him, Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is God. Later in the Scripture, the Bible tells us that He is God become flesh, and the Word dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten Father, full of grace and truth. And then He interprets God to us as well. 
In the last part of the prologue, verse 18, the Bible says, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, namely Jesus, He has explained Him. The word explained means interpreted Him. Not only is Jesus the incarnation of God, as we've seen, but He's also the interpretation of God. You want to know who God is? You need not look any further than Jesus. You may remember one of Jesus' apostles said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus responded by saying, have I been so long with you and you still not know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is the replica of the Father. He's a picture of of God the Father. He Himself is God, and He represents God to us in a very clear way. He is the visible expression of the invisible God, as Paul writes to the Colossians in chapter 1 of Colossians. So when we see Jesus in John chapter 2, what we get a picture of is the passive side of Jesus' personality, And we also, in this section we're looking at today, we see the aggressive side. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In Isaiah 53, the Bible says this about the coming Messiah, and we know Jesus is that person. says, like a a sheep who is silent before its shearers, so was he. Jesus, that's Jesus. Seemingly passive. He was... At some points, phlegmatic, when it was appropriate, he was phlegmatic. But here in this section, he's aggressive, isn't he? Forming a whip and clearing the temple of those things which were not in the right place in the temple. In honor of the Father, he cleared out the temple. So Jesus is not only the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but he's also the Lion of Judah. And he comes with a sword at times. So we need to understand that our God is seen in Jesus. And there is no difference between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. Same God who behaves in different ways, not selfishly, not whimsically, but he addresses situations which need to be addressed as they should be addressed, depending upon the situation. Jesus is full of grace, we saw that already today, and truth. Grace at Cana of Galilee, turning water into wine, and truth as he confronts evil in the practice of religion among the Jews of his day. Well, let's dive into the text now, with that as an introduction. Let's look at verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, this is loaded. This one verse is loaded with information, and I'm going to try to download enough of it, not too much of it, but enough of it for us to put ourselves into this story to see what perhaps was going on in the mind of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you suppose this was the first time that Jesus had ever gone To Jerusalem at Passover? Well, we don't have to suppose. We know this was not the first time. We know from Luke chapter 2 verse 41, the Bible tells us that the parents of Jesus, Mary, his birth mother, 
And Joseph, his foster father, went up to Jerusalem every year to celebrate the Passover. Without fail, they were observant Jews. And you can be sure that Jesus Christ is an observant Jew throughout His life here on earth. We know Jesus said, do not be fooled. I did not come to abolish the law of the prophets. Rather, I came to fulfill them. Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves so that we do not have to worry about trying to fulfill every jot and tittle of the law of God. We can't. The law is designed, according to the teaching of Paul in the book of Romans, to show us how feeble we are in our efforts to make ourselves right by the keeping of the law. Jesus kept the law. According to the book of Exodus, chapter 23, beginning with verse 14, there were three festivals which every 20-year-old male Jew was responsible to participate in annually. This Feast of Passover is the primary one, then also the Feast of first fruits, and then the Feast of Harvest or in gatherings. And Jesus undoubtedly made it a point to celebrate these feasts year in and year out, especially after the age of 12, when he went to the temple. He was bar mitzvah, as we would say at that time. He became a man transitioning from a boy to a man, and he was one who undoubtedly participated in the Passover. I was th- trying to put myself in the scene depicted in this verse. Jesus going up to Jerusalem. Was He traveling alone? Well, nobody ever traveled alone to Passover. It was a festive occasion. It was a family occasion. And not just your nuclear family. It was your spiritual family. All were descendants of Abraham. It was a joyous time. I cannot help but remember one of the songs of ascent. These Psalms, beginning with Psalm 120, going through 134, which have to do with songs that would be sung as people went from wherever they went up to Jerusalem. You're always going up to Jerusalem. It was situated on a mountain, of course, but it was the capital. It was the citadel of God. It's the city of David. It's a great city. And David pins these words in Psalm 122. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Jesus must have sung that with great gusto when He sang it on the way. He was excited about going to the place of worship to observe Passover. It was an exhilarating thought, I'm sure, that He had. Probably, He was not necessarily anticipating what He experienced. Now, Passover, you're aware that that has its roots in Exodus chapter 12. The last of the ten plagues which God sent upon Egypt to liberate Israel after 400 years plus of bondage as slaves, then the Passover was that moment when God told through Moses to Israel, you are to find a lamb, a special lamb, you are to sacrifice the lamb, take the blood of the lamb, place it over the lentils and the doorposts of your house, If you do that, then when the death angel comes over tonight, this would have been the 14th of Nisan, is the month and the day. When the angel of death comes over, the angel of death will pass over your house. And we know what happened in Egypt. There was no blood on the doorpost and the lintel. 
And the angel of death visited those houses. Now, I cannot resist drawing your attention to the obvious here. If we know Jesus Christ, He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. His blood has been shed for us. In a sense, His blood is over us. We are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. So that when death comes for you, if you know Jesus Christ, death is going to pass on by. Because the wages of sin is death. Something's already been done with your death. What was done with it? Jesus died your death for you. He took your punishment for you. And so, it's a great thing that we're considering here. Passover continued in a sense with a week of unleavened bread from the 15th through the 22nd of Nisan. This was a great event in the life of Jesus and certainly in the life of Israel. But let's pay careful attention to Jesus' reaction to what he found when he got to the temple. Now, the word translated temple in verse 14, look at it, he found in the temple. There are two words, we're going to see both of those in this text of Scripture. There are two words which are correctly translated into English with our English word temple. The one which is chosen here is the word which was used to describe the grounds and everything on the grounds of the temple. There was the temple proper, and then there were a lot of other buildings and room around and walls around the exterior to keep the wrong people out, namely the non-Jewish people out, or people who were unclean, who could not come to the worship of God at Passover or any other time. And so this was a huge area. It was a, an area... Many acres in size. The temple proper itself was rather small, actually. Read about it in the book of Exodus as to what the dimensions of that temple would be and elsewhere. So, here Jesus comes. And he finds in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. Jesus is zealous for God the Father's honor. In his own words, he said, I have come to do the will of of my Father. He came to do the will of God the Father. He was zealous for the glory of God. When He teaches us how to pray, how does He begin teaching us? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. That is, Your name is the name above every name, Father. We need to pray with that in mind, that You are the King of kings, the Lord of the universe. Lord, we want to approach You properly. And what was taking place denied the possibility of that taking place, what was taking place in the temple. Now, this selling of animals, was it necessary? Well, you might say, I don't think it was, and in some cases it was not necessary. But understand that historians tell us that between 300,000 and 400,000 people would come from all over the Mediterranean world to celebrate 
the Passover every year. That's a lot of folks, isn't it? And that would increase the population of Palestine by about one-third every year when these people came from all over the world. It would be very difficult to bring an oxen or even a sheep or even a dove from Alexandria in Egypt up to Jerusalem or from Rome to Jerusalem. So it was necessary for animals to be able to be purchased in the environment of Jerusalem, but not in the temple. Now, remember what Jesus says. You have made my father's house a place of business. What would that indicate to you and me about the worship of God when we get together in a place like this or any other place for that matter? What would that indicate to us? We are to do whatever business we need to do, even if it relates to getting ready to worship. We need to do that before we get to the temple, right? And I'll talk about that a little bit more. And it needs to be done outside the temple. Now, this thing that was going on, the selling and the buying and the changing of coins, let me talk about the changing of coins. Was that necessary? It was in many cases, because remember, these people were coming from far-flung places in the Roman Empire, and they typically would be using Roman coinage when they did business, wherever they did business. But on every Roman coin was the impression of the emperor, the Caesar. And this was abominable, unacceptable to Jews, because it smacked of idolatry. So they would not bring the coins with they, which they perhaps used and probably used in most cases in everyday merchandising. They would not bring that. It would be unacceptable to pay the temple tax, which was due at the time of Passover for every male 20 years of age or older. And so they would come and they would exchange money and they would buy coins that did not have an image of a person on them. They could not mint their own coins. Rome forbade that Israel would mint their own coins. They couldn't even make coins to be the half-shekel payment for the temple tax. But Tyrian coins from Tyre, Tyre, you know, in Sidon, were northwest on the coastland of that region. Those coins, which were pure silver were acceptable. So they would make this exchange of coins. Was that necessary? Yeah, banking was necessary. Business was necessary. Banking was necessary. Money is not the root of all kinds of evil. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. I like what Arjun says about this whole event. He says that Christ turns over the tables in the souls of those who are fond of money. It's about our love of money and our Refusal to honor God and understand that money is probably the biggest rival to God as being a God in our lives. You cannot serve both God and mammon, Jesus says. And so here these people were doing their banking in the temple area. They were doing their business in the temple area. And both of those activities were things which caused the temple to be contaminated. People were the ones who really contaminated, weren't they? Now, please understand this. The 
group of people, and really it was one person at the top of the food chain, the CEO of all that business, was the chief priest of all people. He was getting a cut out of everything that took place there. It was big business for him. And, of course, he could justify it. He could rationalize it, just like we justify and rationalize things having to do with money. There is even a popular theology today, if you want to call it that. It's a philosophy. really has nothing to do with the Bible, which says God wants everybody to be rich. And people who preach that gospel, they have a capacity, some of them do at least, to fill up buildings much larger than ours. And they're teaching a false gospel. They're doing business in a way, currying favor with people by appealing to their lower nature to want to use God to get rich. Well, we are rich. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There's nothing wrong with being blessed materially because the Bible says in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 8, it says, God gives you the power to make wealth. All of us have a certain level of wealth, and God gives us the power to do that. In the book of 1 Timothy, the Bible says that God gives us everything richly to enjoy. Whatever we have materially, God's given to us to enjoy. It's okay to enjoy what He gives us. We don't need to feel guilty about this. But there's a warning attached to that statement in 1 Timothy chapter 6, and it's this. Be careful, and I'm paraphrasing now. Many people who are followers of Christ have fallen into dangerous places and have exercised self-inflicted wounds because of their love for money. So we've got to be careful about this, right? Don't do business in the temple. Do business, which you have to do, banking or business, do it outside the temple, right? Do it before you come to the temple. That's what we need to understand. And here Jesus, what's He really doing? He's driving out the contamination in the temple. That impurity in the temple. And it's in the form of the people whom He drove out. As Dan read from Zechariah and Malachi, and Zechariah, the last line, said that in that day, talking about the day when the Messiah comes, in that day, the Canaanite will no longer be doing business, in effect, in the temple of the Lord of hosts. You know the word Canaanite? My translation in the New American Standard has a side note, and it says it means merchant. No merchant. Well, one of the signs that the Messiah had come was that the Messiah would rid the temple of merchants. And so we see Jesus showing up and doing what he was supposed to do. Do we not? Certainly. And then, what about the Levites? They were the ones we read about in Malachi chapter 3. They were the ones who carried on all the sacrifices. And I'm going to go ahead and say this before time runs out on us. Not only was Jesus passionate about getting impurity out from the temple in the form of these traders, these merchants and money changers, but also He was intent to let the people know that the sacrificial system was coming to an end. He was bringing that to an end. In the book of Isaiah, listen to what God says. He says, I take no delight. Now, this is amazing. This is staggering. It was stunning 
for these people when they heard the prophets speak on behalf of God. I take no delight in the blood of bulls or goats or sheep. No delight. Unbelievable. In Jeremiah 7.22, through the prophet Jeremiah, this is what God says. He said, when I called or brought out from the land of Egypt your fathers before you, I did not speak or command them regarding burnt offerings or sacrifices. In other words, Jesus was saying when he did what he did in cleaning the temple, not only is this an end of impurity in the temple, but also it's to be an end of the sacrificial system. And by the way, Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up again. What's he talking about? And I'm really getting ahead of myself, but I don't care. Okay, what's he saying? He's saying, I am the temple, correct? That's what he's saying. Jesus is the temple. That's exactly what he's saying. And it's just amazing what Jesus was doing here in this passage of Scripture. Now, let's look at the response of the Jews to what Jesus did and said. Look at verse 18. In response to Jesus removing the impure and signaling an end to the sacrificial system, look at what the Scripture says. The Jews then said to him, and this is not representative of all the descendants of Abraham. It's a very small group. We know in John 4, 9, John writes, Jesus is a Jew. And then in 4.22, the Scripture says that salvation comes from the Jews. Doesn't that make sense? Jesus is a Jew. And it's through the line of Abraham that Jesus came. Jesus is our Savior. But here's what's interesting. Turn to chapter 6 for a moment of John. Let's look at verse 45. And then we're going to look at one more verse in the 10th chapter. John 6, 45. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Now, There's a strong suggestion in this statement that both Jewish people and also non-Jewish people will be taught of God. God will teach them. Let's go to chapter 10 and look at verse 16. This will rock your world perhaps a little bit, depending on your theology. But we cannot ignore what the Bible says. These are the words of Jesus, okay? Look at 16. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. There's been all sorts of speculation as to whom Jesus was speaking of. I believe he's speaking of non-Jewish people. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. And this echoes what Paul writes in Ephesians 2. We don't have time to look at it. But Paul talks about how in Christ there is a new man being formed. And it's made up of people who are of Jewish descent, descendants of Abraham, and also descendants of non-Jewish people. The wall of division is torn down. Now, think about this court of the Gentiles is where all this was taking place in the temple area. All this buying and selling and money changing and so forth. There was a place designated outside the temple proper, which was considered part of the temple itself, 
where Gentiles who were God-fearers, people who were seeking out of a context of polytheism and emptiness and hopelessness, they had run across people who were true followers of the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had perhaps been subjected or in some way heard the scriptures of what we call the Old Testament, and they wanted to come to Jerusalem to see if they might meet this one true God and become His follower. And they're gathered there, and all they can hear is the bawling of the oxen and the bleating of the sheep and the cooing of the doves. They can smell the manure that is there because of all the animals. They hear all the haggling that's going on between the merchants and those who had come to buy animals and the money changers Money clinking. It was a loud place. It was not a place where you could really hear God easily. It was supposed to be a house of prayer, not a den of robbers, is what Jesus said. It was to be a place where people could hear those who were true followers of the God of Abraham. They could hear them pray. They could hear them praise the Lord. They could even perhaps catch some of the teaching. Because remember, when Jesus was just a boy at 12, when his parents finally found him after three days of separation, what was he doing? He was sitting in the temple, listening to the priests and the scribes teach. And Jesus was dialoguing with them. He became the teacher. So there was teaching going on there. Look, these people come from afar, hoping to meet the one true God, and they can't hear for all the hubbub that was in that place. You know, if we somehow could be projected back into that day and we didn't know anything about anything related to Jesus or even the Jewish religion, if we were somehow transmitted back to that day and we're there, we would say, this looks like a religious place. And it's very impressive. There are lots of people here. There's lots of activity here. I mean, this is a going Jesse here. Well, we need to bottle some of this up and take it back to where we are and where we practice our religion, whatever form it may take. We tend to be very impressed by large numbers and a lot of activity. There's nothing wrong with either. But we need to be careful that we do not fall into the trap that these people had fallen into in the days of Jesus, these descendants of Abraham. And I've been caused to ask myself as I've prepared to share this with you. Am I contributing in any way to the distraction that was like this distraction? So people really don't hear the Word of God. Are there things which we do here in this room? Not just I, but all of us who are part of this. Are there things we do here which suppress the message of Christ to us so we can hear the word of the Lord. Well, let's read a little further. You said to Jesus in verse 18, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? In Luke chapter 17, Jesus is speaking to some Pharisees and he says, the kingdom of God does not come by signs which are observed, but the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. What was Jesus saying? I'm in the midst of you. I am the king of kings. I am the temple, in effect. I am the place where you find the kingdom of God. It's not about signs. Jesus had no kind words to say about people who sought signs to verify. 
And in this case, these people reflect their ignorance. They were more interested in maintaining their own authority and power. By whose authority do you do this? And they were not interested in people who had come to hear the gospel as it would have been understood in that day and time. They were not concerned about those people. Rather, they were concerned about themselves. So this was their response. And look at Jesus' reply. Verse 19, he answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And we know what he's talking about. The Jews then said it took 46 years to build this temple. That's how long the temple of Herod the Great, which was the temple, had been under construction. It still wasn't finished. And it wasn't finished in 70 A.D. when Titus Flavius brought the Roman army in to Jerusalem, destroying Jerusalem and the temple itself. Look at verse 21. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. And then look at the disciples remembering after Christ was raised from the dead what took place here. And it, it, the light came on for them. They understood it. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this. And they believed the scripture. Now look back up at verse 17. I believe this is the scripture that they remembered. His disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Literally the, the phrase consume me could be and should be translated, I believe, will tear me to pieces. Tear me to pieces. And that's speaking obviously of the substitutionary death, Christ giving his life for our life. So they believe the scripture and the words which Jesus has spoken. Namely, that in three days, if you destroy this temple, I will raise it up again. The resurrection of Christ. Do you know how important the resurrection of Jesus is to you? You would not be right with God were it not for the resurrection of Jesus. That's what Paul writes in Romans 4.25. You would not have life if Jesus had not been raised from the dead. But Jesus is alive, isn't he? Now, let me quickly wrap up this passage of Scripture for us. Two main ideas. It's important, first of all, that we know that Jesus Christ has replaced the temple and its necessity. It's no longer needed. He has replaced it and its necessity. Why? Because... Christ died once for all, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God. That's what the Bible says. Jesus is the temple. And we are the body of Christ. The Bible says that in 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians chapter 4. And here's something else that goes right along with it. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, the scripture tells us that what do you not know, talking to us as Part of the church, it's you plural. Do not y'all know that you are the temple of God? We are the temple of God. When we gather here, we are the habitation of the living God. Amazing what is true of us who are in Christ. Amazing. Here's the second thing. Not only is it important that we know that Jesus is the temple And the temple is no longer necessary. He's replaced it. It's no longer necessary. But this is also what we need to remember. That Jesus Christ wants His temple to be purified. He wants it to be clean. If He's going to accomplish His mission through the church, we have to individually, as parts of the whole, 
evaluate our own lives, see if we're free of uncleanness in our lives. Now, I want to look at three ways that we're set free, understanding the importance of purity. The truth sets us free, correct? Jesus sets us free. But when the body of Christ, the temple of Christ, is what it ought to be, it will be free of ritual. It will be free of ritual. And the idea being that in the case of the people of Israel, they had a lot of ritual but no life. Now, let me pause here and make an observation. Every church I've ever been in has its own ritual or liturgy. Every one. We happen to be a low church. That means we're kind of, to some of you from a high church background, loosey-goosey, you know. But there's method to our madness. But it's rather predictable sometimes. We know we're going to sing about four or five songs. We're going to have a greeting time. We're going to have prayer. We're going to read the Scripture. We're going to have an offering, which is an act of worship. We're going to listen to the teaching of the Word of God. And high church people, they're a little uncomfortable sometimes. And you know what I mean. Some of you are here and come from that background when you come here. Because it just doesn't feel like it's organized or structured. But we have our own structure, do we not? And people who are like we are, if you have adopted this viewpoint, of low church people, we want the high church people to get lower. And the high church people want the lower, lower people to get higher. Right? Well, the reality is it doesn't matter whether you're high church or low church. It makes no difference whatsoever. The only thing which makes the difference is that we worship the one true God. We're free of ritual. We're also free of distractions. Now, this is where it gets close to home to me and hopefully to you too. In Luke 17, Jesus says this. He said, temptations to sin are sure to come. But woe to the one who causes another one to sin. Do you know the word Temptations to sin, literally, it's stumbling blocks are sure to come. And the word sins at the end of that statement means stumble. So, Jesus is not trying to be negative. He's being realistic. Stumbling blocks are sure to come. But woe to the one who is the source of the stumbling. It would be better for him to have a millstone hung around his neck and he'd be cast into the sea than that he caused one of these little ones to sin or stumble. Do you have any idea as to whether you are a cause of stumbling for somebody else when you come to this place? Are you? Are you a stepping stone or a stumbling block? Are you a means by which people can come to the Lord? Or do you create a barrier? To others coming to the Lord. Jesus wants to rid the church of that kind of impurity. He's committed to people coming to know Him. And therefore coming to know the one true God who sent Him. Jesus is committed to this. So the Lord wants us to get rid of those things which don't belong. One of the greater 
kings of Judah was a reformer himself. His name was Hezekiah. Hezekiah was one who, coming to the throne, decided that he would be used by God, lest God use him, as God spoke to him about cleaning up the temple. The temple doors had been closed for decades. He gave orders to the Levites and the priests to consecrate themselves. Set yourself apart, he said. And then I want you, having done that, to go into the place of worship and clean it out. I want you to go into the holy place, to the place where there has been filth that has built up, and I want you to bring it out and clean up the temple. I mentioned there are two words for temple in this text. The one that's used in this last section, Jesus speaking of his body, is the word for the holy of holies. Jesus' body is the holy of holies. And the Lord wants us as part of his body, the church, to look at our lives and ask the Lord, Lord, is there something in my life that is preventing the Spirit of God moving. Oh God, would you please pinpoint that and convict me of my need to let go of that in favor of honoring you and being sure that I'm not the person who is the roadblock. You know, it only takes one person to jam up the flow of the Spirit in a church's life. Did you know that one person? In the Old Testament book of Joshua, there's a man named Achan. And he did something that seemed rather innocent. He just stole a few things, not from a fellow Israelite, but from enemies. He just stole them. And God had told him not to take anything when they beat those people. And he hid them under his bed. And it jammed up the whole works. Would you bow your head? Perhaps you sense the Lord speaking to you today about not being a stumbling block, a sticking point. And you know in your heart that there's some reluctance to let the Lord have all of you, not just part of your life, but all of your life. You've been holding back on the Lord. Would you say to the Lord with me, I'm saying this to the Lord myself, as I'm saying to you, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. And know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be a hurtful way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Oh God, please do this. Now having perhaps heard from the Lord about what that might be. Then could you say with David, unite my heart to fear your name. Lord, we do ask you to take the fragmented hearts that we have and put them back together so that we can set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts. Jesus, I ask you, please be not just part of my life, but be the master of my life. And help us as a church, Lord, to be a church that is centered in Christ and therefore is Fulfilling its intended role of accomplishing the will of God in this world. As a church, Lord, make us this kind of church. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.